keeping up on Seattle area politics is tough. Who has time to sit through a three-hour council meeting and sort out which decisions will affect you most? All those in favor say aye. Aye. Well, what if getting caught up on current events was as simple as getting a cup of coffee with some City Hall insiders who know which stories are hot and which are not? Welcome to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. And come on down. It's time for Seattle News, Views, and Brews, the podcast that helps you digest the goings-on of Seattle area politics, even when they don't seem that digestible. I'm Brian Callanan, your host. I'm also a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. We are again recording today's podcast remotely and zooming in to the conversation. It's Kevin Schofield of Seattle City Council Insight. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Brian. Yeah, it's go time, buddy. All right, so special thanks to City Grind Espresso, the coffee shop on the first floor of City Hall. Of course, they're not operating because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but still, our background noise sponsor, help them out. Buy a gift card from them if you can. And also, please support local journalism. This podcast runs on Patreon. We can't run it without your support. So thank you very much for helping out. So let's get rolling with right here, right now. Okay, so usually we're talking about what's coming up this week in local politics, but I want to talk about what's not happening here in the second full week of May, and that would be a budget committee meeting to discuss a big business payroll tax. So just a little background here, folks. This proposal, sponsored by council members Sawant and Morales, was asking for a 1.3% payroll tax on businesses with $7 billion or more in payroll in the city of Seattle. So the money ostensibly was for COVID relief, Payments would go out to people in need, but that was just for the first year of the program, and therein lies the problem. Kevin, you reported on this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it on the podcast. Because we're in a state of emergency, all the work the council does has to be focused on COVID relief or matters necessary and routine. So bottom line here, Council President Lorena Gonzalez has pulled the plug on this legislation for now because she says it doesn't meet those requirements. Yeah, that's right. So I started reporting on this. I, I raised this issue about a month ago, saying yeah. that you know because this bill is a mix of you know what was originally five hundred million dollars a year for Green New Deal projects and affordable housing, and then Councilmembers Suwant and uh, Morales attached in addition to that the first two hundred million dollars in the first year would be spent on COVID relief. Right. They were arguing that this you know it's okay with you know the the prohibition and the governor's proclamation mm-hmm. uh, that which relaxed some of the the restrictions of the Open Public Meetings Act and right. Public Records Act, so that in person meetings didn't have to happen of, of a body like the City Council made decisions. Yep. Um, but last week. Council President Gonzalez sent a memo out to all the city council saying that she had finally pulled together a team to, including the city attorney's office, yes. to look through every piece of legislation that comes through and make sure that it really is something that they're okay to deliberate under mm-hmm. the set of rules that they're working on right now. Yeah, Especially since uh, the governor has extended that moratorium through the end of May. Right. And so they came back in this one and said, their belief is that it's just too risky. Now, you know, it's interesting that Councilmember Herbold, who really raised this issue, she wrote her yeah. own memo on this, yeah. um, has actually not been going to the meetings, the budget committee meetings, right. because, because she of believed that, that, yeah, because of that, concern. That, that her personal legal liability for participating in meetings that she believes are, are illegally being held right. was too high. So she was opting out. 
Um, although it's, you know, it's hard to tell who's opting out because they're doing all their, all their meetings over zoom as well. Yep. So now of course, Councilmember Sawant is, is enraged. She that, is. Uh, yeah. That, that they've that derailed us. Now it may be back in June or at whatever point the governor lifts this moratorium. Right. On this. Right. Yeah. Um, and or I- the, the other option is that as Herbold and, and Gonzalez has suggested that Sawant and Morales could actually, uh, to retailer the bill, you know, mm-hmm. so that it's just the COVID-related part. Right, and then they right. Could, they could and just looking at this, Councilmember Sawant, in reaction to this, a few different things, laid out a number of different tweets talking about Council President Gonzalez, Councilmember Herbold, and their take on this. And she actually had a meeting of her own, Councilmember Sawant did very soon after this, where she brought in uh, some members of local unions or whatever else. She brought in a professor from the University of Oregon, one from University of Massachusetts, talking about how this tax Amazon legislation, as she sees it, would create or support up to 34,000 jobs. So she's trying to fire back here. But I really think this next piece, uh, in terms of what happens next year, centers on what Councilmember Herbold is saying. And I thought it was interesting in the memo that Councilmember Herbold came through a little while ago about this. I think she has kind of come to the conclusion that it would be best in terms of what she's seeing to have this payroll tax, if it's going to be enacted at all. She says in her memo, it would be best placed on the ballot after deliberating on this matter when they can meet after this whole crisis is over, after this whole COVID crisis is over, which I'm not sure about that, Kevin, but that seems to push this way far into the future. Well, yeah, and, and Herbold has been saying this for months, that yeah. she would much prefer to put this to the voters rather than, than have the council do it on their own. Yeah. And so uh, one of the options that the council has is to actually write a bill and put it on the ballot in the fall. Right? They yeah. could do that in August, uh, almost running out of time in August to do that. In fact, they might have run out of time in August to do it. Right, right. But they could do it in the November ballot. The November ballot is going to be tricky, though, because there is a whole bunch of other tax initiatives Mm-hmm. you know, and levies that are coming up for renewal then. So, and, you know, and it's a presidential election, so they're expecting to be yeah. high turnout. Yeah, a lot for, of people which, trying to capitalize on right. what could so, be a big turnout. Yeah, there's, sure. there's lots of people trying to figure out the calculus of this November ballot and, and whether they want to put their thing on that ballot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, given the set, the, demo, the likely demographics of the set of people who are going to be voting in that election. Yeah, yeah. So, so much ahead with that. Thanks for the breakdown on that, Kevin. I do want to talk about some of the things the council is actually meeting on this week, and that would be a few bills that would set up payment plans for tenants if they are involved with a situation where they can't pay their rent or whatever else during the COVID crisis. This bill from Council President Gonzalez would allow for the payment of back rent to happen over the course of a year after the coronavirus emergency ends. Also, the council is set to vote on a bill from council members Morales and Sawant talking about prohibiting landlords from using eviction history as a way to deny renters tenancy for evictions that happened during the coronavirus crisis here. So a few pieces here, Kevin, I think the council is really getting its fingers involved with the whole tenant landlord relationship here. I know there's some pushback on this, but this is kind of the beginning of it here when it comes to these two pieces. Yeah, and I, and I think the larger point here that the council is trying to recognize and address is that the impacts of the COVID-19 emergency don't end when the emergency proclamation is, is lifted, right? True. They're going to continue on for a long time. It's not like magically everybody is suddenly going to be reemployed and they're going to have a windfall of money to spend on paying back rent and, right. and other bills that have, that have collected while people have been out of work, right? Okay. So, so the idea of, okay, let's, let's make sure that people you know, can do a payment plan for 12 months to pay back rent um, is important. And then what Councilman Morales is trying to do with her bill is to start, start to uh, address 
some of the issues around sort of what's the legacy for people of you know the financial crisis of yeah. of being out of work and not being able to pay your rent and if you do get evicted is that something that gets on your permanent record for mm -hmm. the rest of your life yeah. that you have to carry on that you got evicted yeah. so so she's she's proposed a bill to say that um, if you got evicted during uh, during the COVID crisis then um, that is not something that future landlords or potential landlords can use to deny you tenancy right yeah. that will just Everybody gets a mulligan on that. Now, what makes this interesting is that, you know, when, when the, the notion of the eviction moratorium was put forward. Yeah, and we're going to talk about um, that more in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, the, when the eviction moratorium was put forward, one of the, the, the arguments that the opponents to it said was, well, if, if you do that, then people will just stop paying rent, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Because they can basically live rent free and they can't be evicted. Yeah, yeah. And then the cat argument to that was, but there are all these other consequences mm -hmm. of not paying your rent, right? Yeah. It affects your credit rating. You know, you, you get a bad reference from your landlord. They can garnish your wages. Yep. They can send you to collections. So it's not like, hey, you know, you just stop paying your rent and everything's great. Right. Yeah, you, yeah. you have to deal with all these other consequences. But what you know, what what Morales is doing this is she's taking away one of those consequences. Now, there's mm -hmm. still a lot of other consequences. Right. So it's not like if Morales' bill passes and hey, suddenly it's great and everybody can just stop paying rent. And, you know, we've right. simply got backdoor rent cancellation. Yes. Right? Which is another yeah. thing that people have asked the state and federal government to do rent cancellation. Mm -hmm. um, we're not there yet. We're not even close to there yet. But, yeah. you know, if this becomes a trend, it's certainly something to look for is, is this is a way potentially of local officials trying to sort of stealthily implement some notion of rent cancellation by removing the consequences of not paying rent. Absolutely. And Kevin, you know what? I want to continue this conversation as we move on to our next segment here. Now hear this. Okay, we're going to stick with this eviction topic here because we're reviewing some of the action over the last week, listening in to what different city leaders are saying about it. Also, some different business leaders saying about this, too, with this eviction moratorium. So the city did actually pass this last week. Council President Gonzalez yep. had passed this legislation. Yeah, passed unanimously. There was a little bit of back and forth, but this is a big, big deal. So basically what they're saying is this would prohibit eviction of a tenant for failure to pay rent from now until six months after the COVID emergency is done. A few tenants spoke up during the public testimony, but a lot of small landlords did too. One point I heard several times, you brought this up earlier, Kevin, what about people who might take advantage of this legislation even when they might be able to pay? Here's landlord Charlotte Thistle. What would prevent an unscrupulous person from living rent-free for six months or a year and then skipping out without paying their bill? When the moratorium is finally lifted, the answer, nothing. This bill would create a loophole that could be exploited by dishonest people who have no intention of paying their rent at all, leaving housing providers on the hook for thousands of dollars. All right. So just looking at this, Kevin, the council did include in this legislation an amendment that says anyone who uses this defense against eviction in court, because that's what it's all going to come down to, will have to prove financial hardship. But there was not a carve out, as Councilmember Peterson was asking for, for smaller landlords out there. And I guess it really should come as no surprise, Kevin, but I was struck by how many landlords said this eviction moratorium is a really bad idea. 
And I think a lot of them are feeling just worn down because this council over the last three or four years has passed a lot of tenant protection laws. Yes. And, and a lot of them do some really, really good, important things to protect tenants from the most unsavory of landlords. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think it adds a lot more bureaucracy and a lot yeah. more, uh, you know, people looking over the shoulders of landlords, which I think they're a set of landlords that resent at some level. And also, I, I think, you know, what I've heard from some landlords is they feel like they're being uh, sort of plastered with this label of, you know, of slumlord. Yeah, right? And they're right. all being lumped in together, mm-hmm. even though, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're not all like, right, not all right. landlords are alike, right? They're yeah. large, land, large corporate landlords. There are a lot of small landlords that are renting out to the mother-in-law yeah. apartment in their house, trying it's, to, you know, make an extra buck. It's, 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 it's a really different animal. And I think you, you heard from some of those smaller landlords too, saying, hey, you know, if you keep putting these restrictions on us, guess what? You're just really clearing the path for some of these larger landlords to come in and, and getting they're, rid of some of the mom and pops. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the only ones that will be able to afford to deal with all this bureaucracy, right? That, yeah. that will be able to hire the staff to figure out how mm-hmm. to, you know, to do all the paperwork. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones who have enough overhead and, you know, and rents are get more expensive because it, there will be more bureaucracy and paperwork that needs to do. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very difficult trade-off, you know, but I do want to just reinforce again, yeah. right, that there are, are, are a lot of protections that are super, super important, right? Yes. Uh, you know, and starting with things like the fact that, you know, eviction used to be basically three days, mm-hmm. right? And they if didn't have you, to give any reason at all. Yeah, didn't have right. to give any reason at all. So having just cause eviction laws in place is super important. Having you know fourteen days instead of three days to mm-hmm. be able to sort of fix things if you get a pay or vacate notice is a really really important reform. So there's some good things that have come out of this council for doing this, but it's a lot of things. And you can at some yeah. level sympathize with landlords who are saying, yeah. "I'm just feeling like I'm getting buried under yeah. this set of bureaucracy." Yeah. Yeah. Where does it all level out? That's a great, great question. I know a lot of them too are talking about making sure that there's more support out there uh, from the city or other agencies. I know the United Way is really cranking up on that too, to make sure that people are getting some some dollars in their pockets so they can actually help pay the rent there rather than having the city come at it from this legislative point of view. So I, I know there's a lot still ahead with that. And we'll continue to follow that. But I wanted to move on to some other big news. In case you missed it, folks, some pretty big news it looks like when it comes to the Seattle Police Department consent decree. Is the end in sight? We're talking about that 2012 federal order involving then U.S. Attorney Jenny Durkin regarding the constitutionality of how the SPD uses force, also if it engages in biased policing. So the city of Seattle, U.S. Department of Justice jointly filed this motion here, Kevin. I'm trying to figure out what's next on this. This seemed like some big news, but we're not completely across the finish line just yet. But let's just uh, let's back up a little bit and just Please. sort of lay out the pieces of this, right? 2012, the city signed a, a consent decree with the Department of Justice yep. over biased policing, and that consent decree laid out uh, ten different areas where the city needed to get its act together, and appointed a police monitor put in place a whole set of evaluations that needed to happen leading mm-hmm. up to the point over you know a number of years that the city got into full compliance. Once it was declared in full compliance across those 10 areas, then it had to actually stay in compliance for two years, mm-hmm. at which point 
the judge could actually terminate the consent decree. Right, right. right. So two years ago, you hit yes. the point with those 10 areas where the judge said, okay, you're in full compliance. We're still got this weird thing going on the side with police accountability, but yes. police accountability itself actually wasn't one of the 10 areas. Right. It kind of relates overall to trust in the police department, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's not one of the specific 10, ten areas. So it fell into this weird gray area. So mm-hmm. January 2018, basically everything was set for uh, the, the, the judge to find them in full compliance and start the two-year clock. He did that in March, right? So, uh, and that would then run out in March of 2020. Right, right. But then later, uh, actually about, uh, about a year ago, the judge came back and said, well, with what happened with, and we'll all remember that Spog contract that yes, was really right. controversial. Yes. I look at that and I say, you know, you seem to be out of compliance. I'm going to find you out of compliance with issues around police accountability and discipline as represented in that contract. That's a really so good city, Judge Robart uh, impression, by the way, but keep going. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's, mm-hmm. he's an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, I need to go a little bit of a goatee. Yeah, indeed. Like, right. Do the whole thing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll work on that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, he said, uh, but the interesting thing in his ruling was he said, at the same time, I want to acknowledge that SPD has done some amazing work on the mm-hmm. 10 areas that were in right. this and hinted that he'd be willing to kind of split those off. Yes. Let the clock, let the clock continue to run for two years on the main stuff, at which point he'd be willing to terminate that. And then we'll just deal with that other stuff separately. Right. And that's where we are today. And so yes. what happened last week with this filing is the DOJ and the city came back and said, okay, clock has run out on those, on those uh, two years for yes. a sustainment period. Uh, and we're going to ask the court to terminate all those 10 areas that were all, you know, the major part of the, of the consent decree, mm-hmm. leaving just the police accountability and discipline part left to still be resolved. Right, right. So that's the split out here. And I'm just trying to figure out what happens next, because it sounds like the city is going to be working on coming back into compliance here. But yep. here we go with COVID yet again. So there, there's yeah. there's a lot of yeah. work that's going on there. It sounds like we're going to have a little bit more information on this. Uh, August In 1st August. is the date In that August. I saw there. Yeah. I, I guess I'm trying to yeah. figure out what, when the other shoe drops on this or what's next. Yeah. So what's been happening with this is that the city hired a consultant to come in and make some recommendations about how they could get back into compliance because mm-hmm. it's not really clear you know, what it's going to take. Yeah. In the meantime, the city is now actually renegotiating their contract yes. uh, with, with, uh, with SPOG, the yep. police officers union. And you know, so they have a list of, hey, here are you know, potentially some things that we could change in this contract that would get us into back into compliance. It's unclear what will happen with that because SPOG holds all the cards there. Right. Yeah. They can ask for whatever the heck they want yeah. because they know that the city's stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Yeah. They're not in compliance and the, and the judge isn't going to bring them back into compliance until they get some different terms in this contract. And SPOG can ask for whatever they want in return yeah. for those terms, right? Yeah. So that's going to be a super, super tough negotiation. In the meantime, as you mentioned, we've got this COVID thing going on. Oh, yeah. And, and in their filing last week, the city said, we're dealing with this emergency. That's where the focus of our, of our efforts are right now, including yeah. law enforcement. And so, you know, we're expecting on August 1st to come back and with a filing that will say exactly how we're going to come back into compliance. And my guess is the judge will probably, in fact, I think, first of all, the judge is going to grant 
the uh, you know the termination of everything, right. the main part. Mm -hmm. I think he'll do that probably pretty quickly. And then as far as the rest of it, my guess is he'll you know he'll understand that yeah. we're in the middle of an emergency right now, yeah. and yeah. he'll probably give them to August first. He probably won't be happy about that. I don't yeah. know if he'll actually express that, yeah. you know, in in public. Yeah, but uh, but I think he'll probably be understanding. That's the reality that's going on there. Very good point. All right, we're going to move on to what's next. All right, Kevin, a really interesting twist here on gathering signatures right now. And a lot of this focuses on the tax Amazon movement that's happening. We're moving back to that world right now. So this tax Amazon bill, this idea that people are bringing up, it's pushing forward as a city ballot measure this fall. Now, normally we'd see people out and about signature gathering, but you can't really do that right now because of social distancing. But the deadline for petitions is July 2nd. And our state doesn't really quote unquote open, I guess you say, for a few weeks after that in terms of relaxing those social distancing requirements. So we got a problem. Supporters of tax Amazon are saying, let's collect electronic signatures instead. It's just that involves an itty bitty change to the city charter and possibly the state constitution too. Is this going to go anywhere, Kevin, this idea for electronic signatures? Well, so in time for uh, uh, tax Amazon uh, voter initiative in the fall, absolutely not. They're going to have to do it, it the yeah. old way, right? Yeah. You know, changing the city charter requires the city council approving it, the mayor approving it, and then it going to the ballot and the voters, a majority of the voters approving that change to the city, uh, right. city charter, right? Right, right. And part of what the city charter and the laws say right now for the city are that all the rules for how you verify signatures are following the state law, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and that is both in state law controlled by legislature and in the state constitution, right? So, yes. so there's a long line of stuff that needs to, to change. Now, you know, it, it raises an interesting issue, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the, 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 the state constitution says very clearly that voter initiatives, you know, that the, the, the people reserve, you know, for themselves the right to write laws, right? yes. so mm -hmm. the legislative authority, right? Yes. And independent of what the legislature chooses to do, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, at some ways they say that, that, that you know, voter initiative uh, authority is a higher authority than legislature, right? You so could argue, yeah. The mm -hmm. Constitution says that very, very clearly. So we're in an emergency right now, right? Yeah. And in an emergency like, like this one, it is really, really difficult to collect en up enough signatures mm -hmm. to get a voter initiative on the ballot. So right. do, are we just simply sort of waiving the whole uh, voter initiative system at yeah. this point for the length of this emergency? Yeah. Or do we need to, uh, you know, do something to change that? Yeah. And, you know, changing the city charter and changing the, the state constitution over the course of an emergency is not something that the mayor or the governor can do on their own. Right? No, they don't no. have that. They, you know, their power is derived from the Constitution. They right, can't right, right. waive parts of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what's going to happen this year, you know, nothing is going to happen this year. And the Tax Amazon Initiative has to, has to do it the hard way. But yeah, it raises yeah. a really, really good issue about, you know, the next time there's a pandemic. Next time yeah. we have to do something where that makes it really difficult mm -hmm. to get a voter initiative. And this could last well into 2021. Yeah, right? This yeah. could be a thing that goes on for a while. Right. What does this mean to this sacred right of the yes. voters to pass their own laws in the right. state if we've made it that hard to do it? Now, yeah. you know, at the, at the same time, you know, what they've asked is, is to say, well, you know, they're, they're saying, look, you know, today you can go up to the King County Elections website or, you know, the yeah. state and, 
change your voter information, right? Right, and right, you, right, right. You don't, no, nobody really verifies your signature in some in that way, yeah. way to mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. So for petitions, which aren't really the same as voting, mm -hmm. why shouldn't that be kind of a lower bar? Yeah. So, you know, why couldn't they have some kind of mechanism where, you know, there's an electronic ID that you could use to right. we'll really just make it a lot. Of, and if you do that, you know, the consequences is, is it will be a lot easier for anyone to get enough signatures right. to get something on the ballot. So we'll probably see a lot more initiatives on, on the ballot. It right. would certainly make it easier for the tax Amazon movement to do this. But yeah. you know, at the same time, I'm not sure that, that council member Swant has really thought this through because, yeah. you know, voter initiatives, aren't the only thing that kind of go through this petition process, right? There's right. Three things that go through the petition process. Mm -hmm. Voter initiatives. Yep. There's voter referendums. Mm -hmm. And there's recall petitions. Right. right? So right. if they make, and they don't get to make it easier just for voter initiatives, mm -hmm. right? If they make it easier for voter initiatives, then they're also going to make it easier for, you know, uh, and a payroll tax that the city passes sure. to be overridden by voter referendum. Right, right. right. Or at least get it on the ballot. Yeah. Now right? that's, and, there's, and, oh, boy. and, you know, they'll make it easier for elected officials to get recalled. Right. right? Or, at least, right. or at least get a, a recall vote on the yeah. ballot. A lot, yeah, a lot more behind this politically than just uh, the tax Amazon piece. I mean, I, I think there's a lot still ahead with this. You're right to say that I don't think this is happening for tax Amazon, but in this era that we're in, are we basically saying put a hold on the petition process for a year and change? I mean, that's 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 part of the issue here. So that's uh, a big deal. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, Kevin, I I do appreciate the back and forth, but I think it's high time we move <laughs> on to the baked goods here, shall we? Uh, always a good Let's part of the it. show. Always a good part of the show. Uh, what do you have coming out of the oven right now, my man? I made beer bread. What? Get beer out of bread. here. Beer bread okay. is the best. Talk to me about beer bread and how beer you bread. make it. What's what's the secret? Beer bread is actually, uh, this is a recipe I got for my daughter. It's actually uh, uh, super easy. Okay. It's, it's you know, flour, baking powder, uh, um, a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar, mm -hmm. and, you know, a bottle of beer. Wow. Okay. And, and one for you, one for me. That's how it yeah, goes. And, okay. and you can try different kinds of beer. I found that porter works really well for, ah, for, mm -hmm. for it. So I made some beer bread and it's just super tasty stuff. Oh, that's so, great. I uh, uh, Full disclosure here, folks. Uh, Kevin very kindly sent the Brave Tart book my way. It's a cookbook and so much more by Stella Parks. Excellent reading uh, aside from mm -hmm. the recipes. It's it's really, really well done. And, and again, full disclosure, my daughters do most of the baking in the house here. So uh, my daughter, Emma, went with the Loft house cookie. That's my uh, my mouth uh, salivating there. So this is one of these things where it's kind of a sugar cookie, but when you make it with cake flour, not all-purpose flour, something magical happens. Um, I've already eaten several of these, so that I, <laughs> you might sound like I'm faking it here, but I love this cookie. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, excellent. The result is absolutely amazing. You know what I'm saying, Kevin? When it's not like that crispy, crunchy cookie thing, but right. that more cake-like consistency. It's just soft and delicate mm -hmm. and kind of oh. falls apart really easily. That is the good stuff there, indeed. Wow. Thanks again, well, everybody. I'm glad, you guys are, I'm glad you guys are having fun with the cookbook. We are having a great time with the cookbook. Thank you, Kevin, so much for, for being with me on the program and always coming with it with the great baked goods every time. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Had to be done. All right. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on Seattle News, Views, and Brews. The next time you want to know what's going on in local politics, give us a listen. Find out what's brewing. Reach us via email at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. 
please, please, please support us on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. And as always, thanks for listening. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2020.